I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. <clears throat> You're listening to the Sands Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, adventures, and ghosts. Hi everyone, welcome to Bookish, this is the show where you ask me what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, he used to host The Breakfast Show on Triple J, he hosted his own late night TV show, he's a brilliant comedian with a special on Paramount Plus, and a recent author of the book I, Millennial, One Snowflake Screed Against Boomers, Billionaires and Everything Else, Tom Ballard, a pleasure to have you on. Oh, George, this has been years in the making, I believe, I think you asked me to do a live edition of this in Edinburgh like four years ago or something. And I'm an asshole, and I only come calling when I have my own fucking book out. What a what a piece of shit! Look, I didn't. I was gonna not say that directly, but yeah, that's. that's <laughs> you haven't actually I'm listened sorry. to all the episodes. I've been saying this a lot over the past two years. The truth is, I just don't read that much, so I think I was scared of doing the show. And, you know, because if someone says, "What's your favorite book?" my knee jerk reaction is like, "Oh, Harry Potter," which is terrible. And I need to read way more, and I have read more than Harry Potter. But it's uh, it's so weird that that's um that looms large. I read lots of articles and pieces, but in terms of sitting down for a full book, I think the internet's destroyed my brain and affected my ability to to seriously do it. But yeah, I want to try and fix that. I love you saying that as you're bringing out a book. <laughs> I know. I mean, I would never read this book. I could yeah. barely write this book. Holy shit. This took me like two years. It always killed me. It was a nightmare. I don't know how people do this. Like the whole thing is just book after book after book. And people assume because you write a book that you read lots of books, but that's not the case. Yeah, no, look, that's, I, I've actually been learning that more and more doing this show. <laughs> that is definitely not the case. <laughs> people just put out books, hopefully they yeah. work out. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to read. And then, you know, if someone else has a book out the same time, like Will Anderson released his book. And he very kindly read my book and said some nice things. And I'm like, I will absolutely get around to reading your book, Will, I promise. I still haven't read Alex Dyson's book, my my dear friend from Triple J. He's written multiple books. I just, I don't, do, do, you, do you find that you're obviously very good and very well read, but do you find when you sit down and you read a novel, you have to turn your phone off or does your brain start going in a bunch of different directions? Or I've got it like as a, for me, it's real um, second nature. This is yeah. just the whole life of doing it. So like, I'm always reading something. So I'll just, depending on how it hooks me, but yeah, I don't need to really, some days if I'm getting ultra distracted by stuff, I will yeah. not, ju- I'll just not read for a bit, but then I'll get back into it. But I'm always reading something. So that's good. I don't share that issue um, because I'm not an idiot. So. <laughs> 
It's a, I bought a fucking reading chair for my bedroom in this apartment, right? Like, really nice. It's just like, just you could not find a better chair in which to sit down and read. And it has been where I put my clothes for about two years now. Yeah, that's maximizing uh, vibes instead. Look, you're getting the reading vibes. Just not. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think it's one of those weird things because, like, I'm sure you probably have something like this as well in something where for you, it's almost you can't tell someone else how to do it or give tips on how to do it because for you, you just do it mm. all the time, no matter what. So, whether sure. that's like keeping up to date on news or writing maybe comedy or whatever, it's like you don't even have to think about it. I mean, it's, you know, in my defense, I mean, I'm also up against the attention economy in the way, and I did briefly, I read some of Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, about this and interviewed him for my podcast where he talks about what's happened to our levels of attention and how this is a real social phenomena, the speed of society is sped up, and the way that technology and the way we organize our time means it is genuinely harder to concentrate. But I guess I would have used to read something before going to sleep, and of course now I just bring my laptop into bed and watch series right and i really want to consciously say no more laptop in the goddamn bedroom like that should be a place it's not good for you for your sleep either but also to give that space over to reading would be much nicer yeah i love that like you take it a level up from people's complaining about their phones you're like no nah, i'm gonna bring a whole laptop in <laughs> it's like an even bigger screen that's <laughs> well if i'm watching series i'm not I'm, I'm better now i'm not like scrolling as much late at night i've gotten better at that and and just generally, I love the death of Twitter. I think it's really good and positive. And just if that thing, if that if my life moves on without kind of Twitter being a major part of it, I think that that's a better life for all involved. So in in a way, Elon is helping humanity. I think mm. by getting us to leave that goddamn platform and and think about life differently. Yeah, he's made it. He's made it more addictive in the short term, because just to see what the latest screw up is. But yeah, <laughs> long term, that's true. Just- yes. Poison the well, and yeah, no. Look, it's, it's one of the, yeah. Like, I don't even take a phone into the bedroom. I got nothing in the bedroom, nothing to distract me, just because. Uh, That's genius. You're looking at me, no one can no, see. No, I'm so impressed. Face no, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I just don't know how you do that. Well, also, my phone is my alarm, though. But yeah, too. But um, an alarm clock. You see, that's genius. Yeah, genius. Well, whoop de doo, Georgie boy. <laughs> We're all what very happy okay. for you. <laughs> Look, I'm just, it's always funny when people say that because like, oh, you, wow, you've got like good self-control, good thing. And I'm like, no, I've got the opposite. I know how much I'm going to lose <laughs> if I'm up against my phone. So I just have to have it not in the room. Like I'm an addict. Right. So I've got to cut that shit because otherwise, like it's simple. Like I'm not going to try to beat it. <laughs> it's just imp- But you've it's taken those steps. That's, that's, that's discipline. That's um, very impressive. Yeah. Look, it's, yeah, look. But the show's about you. Come on, come on. And look, let's we do uh, we do have a long history together, and you've done a whole bunch of stuff. But look, before we go to that, let's start with the book. So, your book of choice for today is it is a picture a picture book with very little text. (laughs) (laughs) And I just reread it this morning, so I did just read a book. Actually, exactly. Technically, that counts. That goes on your list for the end of the year. Well, I said a few options, but this one, actually, this, yeah, I'm glad we worked with this one because, like, in terms of, in my head, something that really looms large and when I think about the magic of childhood, the, ma- the discovery of reading and imagination as a kid, like, this is a very, very big touchstone. It's a book called The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, uh, put together by Chris Van Allsburg. And actually, I didn't know this until I was looking around. Chris Van Allsburg wrote and illustrated Jumanji. Uh, and the Polar Express, too, like the, those original books that turned into those massive movies, of course. So he's like a kid's illustrator himself. And in the 80s, he put together this book, The Mysteries of Harris Burdick, which has a pretty extraordinary story behind it. 
basically, uh, this guy called Peter Wenders was a publisher. And one day, this guy came along called Harris Burdick and said, I've written uh, these these stories, these stories for kids. I've written illustrations and stories um, for kids. I've got about 14 of them. And he showed the publisher these drawings that he'd done. And they were amazing. Like, they're just like just little glimpses into these incredible stories that are fantastic. And he has just a title for each picture and a little caption. And the publisher's like, this is this is great. I'd love to see the stories. And Harris Burdick said, no worries, I'll be back tomorrow. And then Harris Burdick disappeared off the face of the earth, completely vanished. No, it, no trace of him was ever found again. Peter Wenders could never connect with him once again. Completely disappeared off the face of the earth. And so that all the remains is these 14... Uh, illustrations with a title of the story and a little caption. And it is impossible to read these without just having incredible sparks of imagination fly. You absolutely want to know what's going on with these stories. And they're beautiful. They're really beautiful drawings. And it is just such a beautiful, incomplete thing that is so inspirational and and exciting. And I just, I was just, yeah, going over the pictures again this morning, being like, this is fucking great. I love this. And of course, the uh, this has been a very popular touchstone in a, in American uh, schools and and all over the world because kids read this and are inspired to write their own stories. So there's like probably you know hundreds of thousands of stories inspired by the images that we see in this collection, the mysteries of Harris Burdick, to the point where, and I just found this out too. Stephen King, I think, has like written a full story based on on one of these images too. Yeah, nice. Yeah, look, this is the first time I've heard of it, and it's right. it's really cool. Like I didn't like I didn't know it existed, so I love when I hear a concept like this because immediately I'm like, oh yeah, that's that does sound. It would just get your imagination going and stuff. Perfect for kids who want to learn how you can be creative and all that. Yeah, um, I don't know how it came into my life. It must have been through my mum. My mum's been an English teacher, and they were big on reading, and I was, you know, like a pretty pretty regular reader as a kid. Not, not as big as my brother. My brother was crazy. Like he would read. I think he read Da Vinci Code in a night. Um, he's incre- He's like a speed reader. He can sort of do two pages like extremely quickly. Um, but uh, yes, mum loved books and reading and would bring home this kind of stuff, could tell that I was sort of creative and she must have passed it on to me. And yeah, it's like really magical and it's kind of, I would say, you know, Roald Dahl-esque. It's sort of in that kind of world in terms of the possibilities it opens up and the kind of neurons it starts firing. It's just, yeah, it's just a joy to sort of flick through and something unlike I've, I'd seen anywhere else, yeah. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, this is like, this makes me think I should have gotten this for one of my nephews or nieces for Christmas because it's like a very sweet, yeah, it's good. I like I it a lot. I think so, because it, it's yeah. kind of, you know, obviously you can give, you know, there are incredible picture books there that tell a full story with beautiful illustrations, but there's something so tantalizing and truly mysterious you know, you could get a mystery book or something, but this is like truly mysterious, both the story behind the pictures and the stories and also this entire world that it kind of hints at. And I don't know, maybe the stories are dog shit. I don't know, maybe they're just truly terrible. We'll never know. And that's kind of the beauty Surely of it. Surely that's, okay, wait, wait. Surely this isn't actually real, that part. Surely that's made up. Oh, you don't think it's real? Surely not. No, I think it's totally real. Oh, no. Do you think? Oh my god! Maybe I'm an idiot. It's real for your sake, but (laughs) okay. So you think the whole premise of the book is is nonsense? Well, nonsense is a strong word, but I'd say it's more uh, a setup for the freedom to, you know, tell a story to yourself. Really? Oh well, that would that'd be annoying for me. 
that no. that'd steal the magic away from me. So you, all right, you think the whole premise of Harris Burdick doesn't exist? You think someone just couldn't be bothered writing these full stories and sort of said, "Oh, this would be a fun premise for a kids' book." Is that really what you think? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if they said they couldn't be bothered. You, they couldn't write their stories. They literally said from the start, "Hey, I'm going to make a book mm. where it's open for people to interpret how they want, and I'll give it a cool little background thing." I really feel like I'm telling a kid that Santa isn't real right now. <laughs> you really like, don't think it's real? Oh. I don't know. I don't know. This is just, I, I would have thought that's the, maybe I'm jaded. I don't know. I read maybe. the um, the Wikipedia article. It didn't say anything about it, that. Um, <laughs> and Wikipedia never lies. It is being turned into a movie. Ah, so it must be real then. <laughs> well, I don't know what the movie is. I don't know whether the movie is based on the drawings or the story of Harris Burdick. I don't. I don't fucking know. Is this, are you seriously just flexing the fact that you read Wikipedia this morning? Now, <laughs> it was a pretty short article. No biggie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're blowing my mind. If this, if the whole thing is made up, then then I'll be I'll be very sad. But I mean, there's still great pictures and stuff. But um, well, it, uh, yeah, look, just don't- it's a commitment to the bit. I'll be honest. It's, look, it is, and you got to respect that as a, as a comedian. Look, let me just say this. There's no need to look it up. Let's just live in our imaginations, you know? That's right. I, I'm not basing that on me having looked up anything. Just let's assume it's let's, probably real. Yeah. Let's live in a world in which, uh, in which this is true. God, I feel so jaded now for even saying it. Jesus. I, don't, right, I think it's real. That's, that's, that's my vibe, but anyway. Yeah, we yeah, should- yeah. No, definitely. Should we describe some of these for the sake of the listener? This might be infuriating if people don't know what we're, what the hell we're talking about here. Um, you, you can, yeah, go on. I, Just, I, cause I, I only saw one picture, so I don't even know what it meant about a title and a and a tagline. So yeah. Oh, okay. Them. You didn't right. You didn't see the full thing. Have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. So on one page, you've got the the illustration, and then so the first one is Archie Smith, Boy Wonder. That's the title of the story. A tiny voice asked, "Is he the one?" And the picture is a, of a small boy sleeping in his bedroom and three orbs of light entering the window. That's yeah. all you get. A strange day in July, a couple of kids skipping stones. He threw with all his might, but the third stone came skipping back. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what's, what's going on with these stones? <laughs> Missing this is in- adorable. And I, it's I so like- good, though, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I actually do. I love that. And it's especially because I think... Um, depending on the household you grow up in, you might not realize the capacity for that sort of stuff and how easy it is to just tell fun stories or to invent where things go and to enjoy that act more than just like passively sitting there and sucking up culture. So I'm just thinking, give a man a story and he reads for a day, but make a man a storyteller. <laughs> it's, but it's so interesting too, because I think even since since childhood, you know, creatively, people, and you'll hear directors or writers and stuff or, or playwrights, they'll say, I started with an image. Like, this image just came into my head. But you'll just hear it. They'll say, this image, this dark image struck me in my mind, and then I just kind of worked backwards, and then that's what produced this incredible piece of work, you know. And I get that too sometimes. Just You'll just get a flash of something. That, and then and then you have to try and, like, investigate what that image was, and then you ask questions and you flesh it all out. And that's just like exactly what this book does. My favourite is uh, The Seven Chairs, and it says the fifth one ended in France, and it's just in a cathedral, and there's a nun sitting on a chair that's hovering high above the floor. And you're just like, what the fuck's going on with that one? Um, so good. Yeah, so I think that's re- that kind of recreation of the creative process of just sometimes having like, what if an elephant was I- I- in pyjamas? And then you go, oh, okay, okay, let's let's backtrack. How did the elephant get into pajamas? Then you start telling this incredible story about 
about Dumbo going to sleep or something. I don't know. But, yeah. um, yeah, it's, so, it's just a beautiful thing. People should check it out. And if you've got little kids who love writing or have, you know, uh, active imaginations, uh, it will be impossible for them to read this without being inspired. But it could all be an entire hoax and George has just destroyed my childhood. So who knows? Well, look, you know, it's it doesn't destroy it, but okay. But yes, just not look it up, okay? <laughs> this is, that's where we're on the job here. We're finding truths. I'm sorry if it's too real for you, Tom. Right? I got triggered, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I guess like straight away my thing with that is like the creative element that's involved in that and the storytelling and all that. So is that – and you said your mum got you that when you were a kid? I think so, yes. I think she must have brought it home from the library at some point and I got a little bit obsessed with it, yeah. Right. So you're always like kind of the creative one? Yeah, I loved yeah writing, making up stories, and performing. I, I got involved in amateur theatre very early on. I think that was sort of <clears throat> the big spark for creative stuff. And I loved writing, and I would often say that I wanted to be a writer. These were my goals that I was laying out when I was about in, in grade two or three or something. Okay. And I, I loved writing poetry and writing stuff. But I also wasn't very disciplined, and often my stories, I wouldn't finish the stories and... You know, the idea of, like, telling a story from beginning to end was, like, I, I would lose interest sort of halfway through that process. And I think I like the act of writing more. I got a typewriter for some reason, and I once basically rewrote a book of Zorro, which I was obsessed with. Um, and, yes, yeah, so it was just me reading that book and rewriting a version of that on the typewriter um, for some very strange reason. Oh, so, so you were just, like, type. Literally copying it, you were trying to read. Not word for word. It was more like just retelling the same shit that Zorro was up to in the book, um, but sort of pretending it was my own little uh, novel that I was writing. Yeah, I mean that's not the word. That sounds like pretty good practice sort of thing for being a writer. Yeah. All right. So you're a huge nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I was having heaps of sex and uh, and partying as well. Oh no, yeah, yeah. Your characters were anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So that's. the the funny thing, yeah, when you talk about like writing the, yeah, an ending's always a million times harder than a start, which is right. kind of like, because that's, you can do anything at the start and then at the end you got to tie it together and then it all falls apart or it works. So yeah, has that influenced in your comedy when you do stand-up comedy and stuff? You do shows? I know I think like your Paramount Plus one, I think was a bit looser in terms of a thematic link, but I remember mm. watching a show of yours years ago in Edinburgh. I think it was you catching a cab and then you just use that as an excuse to jump off and do stuff, but you still had kind of that very bare bones through line through. So that's something you try to do or? Yeah, I guess it's all storytelling in a way. I mean, I don't know. Some comedians are such a great at telling stories on stage and I guess I kind of do that sometimes, but mainly I think I'm better at writing routines and kind of dissecting ideas. That's probably where I've ended up with much more kind of observing or political commentary kind of stuff rather than telling some amazing story. I'm still endlessly amazed at comedians who can just pull like an amazing story out of a very mundane activity. I've never been too too great at that, I think. Um, And then, yeah, sort of storytelling in other other ways, like, yeah, writing something more structured. I've tried to write a few sort of plays and stuff too – I, I don't know. I would love to work on those skills, that's for sure. But I guess, yes, it's more yeah, more about structuring. Language is big too, like getting really into the right word choice and using words and language in a really inventive way. Um, I think I think probably all comedians, stand-up comedians work, you know, are, are very conscious of language and, and specific word choice. <clears throat> so that was really helpful. But I would love, yes, it's, you know, structuring a show and, and figuring out how things link into other things and callbacks and all that kind of stuff. It, these are all sort of storytelling techniques. Mm. But I suppose stand-up has this sort of 
beautiful freedom where it's kind of you really can go anywhere and things don't have to end necessarily. It's not like you need to tie everything up in a beautiful bow at the end. It's just like if we laughed and thought about a lot of bunch of stuff by the end of the hour, then people won't demand a refund. So it's kind of fine. Um, yeah. yeah, some show. I mean, some some incredible stand up shows are shows that are both very funny and also brilliantly are brilliantly structured in a way that tells a, a very satisfying story. Um, but sometimes your life just doesn't provide the material <laughs> in order to produce those shows. So you've just got to just got to yell for an hour about your dick. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's, that's a winner. <laughs> it's, People it's a seem to, for a reason. still seem to like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so actually you mentioned writing there. So I'm actually just curious now, and uh, this is such a cheesy question, but because you started, I would assume by now you don't do as much writing on the page as you do on stage, but do you still do a lot of writing on the page? Yeah, no, I write it all out. Yes. Yes. No, I can't. I don't know what writing on stage means, really. I still, when people say that, I still don't know what that means. Like they just literally go on stage and just say stuff that they've been thinking about that's funny. Like fucking hell, that's that's amazing. And if I wish I could do that, that would be great. And I certainly develop routines on stage and add tags and you know subtract, add and subtract routines by doing them on stage over a long period of time. But for me, I need to like know what the punchline is. I need to know what the premise of it is. And normally writing is me at home talking out loud to myself and, and then literally writing everything out longhand. Yeah. Um, oh, so you do longhand as well. What does that mean? No, I mean, I, mean, I write it all out fully on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not longhand. No, okay. Just casually <laughs> throwing a longhand in there. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I, mean, I meant that I write it out as a script is what I meant. That's that's the 2022 version of longhand, writing all yeah, the yeah. words <laughs> on the computer. Yeah, not dictating it. That's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> well, okay, so, that's interesting to me. So, so you basically start off, you're like, oh, this idea is funny, and then you'll actually just, which I, I don't mind the talking out one as well, because that's usually like it flies that way, but on your own, and then you just kind of pick and choose the parts you said which you liked and thought were funny, and then you yeah. write those down. So is that kind of how you do it every time? So you try to build up and have at least some clear punchlines before you go up on stage. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I also just think it compels you to flesh it out. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I should try just getting up on stage more. Maybe it'll it'll p- push me into some different areas and it might make me write different stuff um, because often, sometimes if you structure it that much and you write it out like a script, you, you yeah, sometimes it gets a little bit formulaic. I've, I've found that too. Um, and then you don't really know until you read it out loud. I did a trial show last night and I sat down on a, on a chair and just lowered everyone's expectations. and was like literally reading it off the page, which I thought was <clears throat> quite helpful. Actually, if I just drop the pretense of having to know it and I'm just like, these are the words that I want to say, let's see how they, those go. I also think it's like good because you've, you, at this point you've developed a certain showmanship. So you know how to sell stuff, which maybe isn't that strong. So by... Stopping yourself from doing that. Sure. Yes. Hopefully. Yes. Hopefully, if the writing, if the writing works with no performance, then you know it's okay. I think there's a yeah. Chris Rock's process apparently is he'll just say say deliver his jokes in a very deadpan way because he knows he can always Chris Rock it up. But if they work, if the jokes just work as as pretty um, poorly delivered jokes, then he knows he's he can make it work really well. Yeah. 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 And that's how I think like. I don't know. Do you experience that? I wonder if Australia, you get that as much. Like, cause obviously he's got the issue of being in America where everywhere he goes, if he just, as you said, like Chris rocks it up, the crowd's going to go nuts. It doesn't matter because like they love him and they've yeah. got the fame thing. Do you ever get anything like that where you're like, this is too easy? <laughs> this is like, you guys will take anything. <laughs> you bloody. Yeah. It's a real <laughs> curse. You the slop, you filthy animal. <laughs> 
Um, look, there's a level of goodwill. You know, more often than not, if I'm going on stage, some people might be vaguely aware of, of me. Certainly when I'm doing my own show, you're walking into a warm, receptive audience. And that little, you know, gust of wind and that acceptance sort of just helps you, yeah, helps you along. I've never felt it's too easy, no. If I go out there and it's really easy and I'm having a great time... I think everything's A-OK. I'm (laughs) not like, oh, I'm bored with how amazing this comedy is going. Um, Yes. You want to, you want to, sometimes you want to expand and try different things. And like, and I've certainly done that in in recent years, sort of tried to do different approaches to to doing a show because doing an hour year after year can get pretty repetitive. But um, uh, no, still haven't quite clocked all of Australia yet. No. Yeah, so is that um, – and actually, on that note, so you're talking about, like, yeah, new shows all the time, which is obviously the fun of being a stand-up. And I, cause I saw you got – I saw you doing this Work in Progress show and you're touring it next year. Mm. Like, so when do you say, like, you're trying to do new things? Is that you sit down and you're like, okay, this show, I don't want to just be sitting on stuff I've done. Like, how conscious is that choice? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, sometimes it's very explicitly a different show. I'm, do- I'm doing a stand-up show called It Is I in 2023, and in Melbourne I'm doing another one of my comedy lectures uh, about the referendum process because we'll have the voice referendum in the second half of next year, so I want to sort of run through the history of the number of times we've changed the Constitution and, yeah, it has some hilarious constitutional humour that we could all enjoy. How, how it's, I don't know if Melbourne should be insulted or proud that <laughs> we're turning up for a comedy lecture. Yes. Yeah, baby. All right. Well, I did it in 2016 about uh, refugee policy and stuff, which was more of a, sort of a theatre piece, really. You know, it was a bunch of stand-up, but it was sort of, you know, a bit of theatrical stuff going on there. And I love that challenge. My 2021 show was with the PowerPoint as well, with images. I thought that was really fun. So, yeah, it'll be in that kind of that kind of vibe. But stand-up-wise, you sort of just sort of set yourself challenges. And, and, you know, I think as you do it longer, you sort of say, okay, that's not good enough to go in or that's relying on an easy punchline. Or my big thing is, like, I don't want to finish on a callback. This is very important to me. Most stand-up shows in an hour format, you will see, will often finish with some kind of reference to a joke earlier in the show. It's a callback. It's often great. It's very satisfying but I just have to believe that there is a different way to finish a stand-up comedy show um, that doesn't just involve involve that kind of thing. My, my uh, thing to that is if the callback is on its own a good joke without yep. the callback, yep. then it's all right. Then it can you work. You know what I mean? Yeah, as long as it's funny or like if they didn't hear the first thing, it's still funny. So all you're getting is that cherry on top of it also being a reference back to something. Then I yes. think that's... Yes. Yeah, when it's just like doing a callback where it's... The only thing is the fact that it's a callback. That's, yeah, that's... Like, From before, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Remember? Yes. No, I've seen ones that where it's like the... You end with something revealing something about that we learned earlier on or something that you've forgotten, right? Something that was yeah. insignificant was revealed to be far more significant in the end. That's also very satisfying and that's probably mm-hmm. a more complex version of it. But, yeah, I just literally... You know, a lot of stand-up specials and stuff, American stand-up specials, they just on the biggest laugh or they just finish in a, like there's a big heave of laughter and then they just say, thanks very much. Good night. I'd quite like to be able to do that. uh, Yeah, that's true. That's while we're still on the topic of the writing stuff. Cause I'm interested. You mentioned poetry as well. So just to really crack all of the, the, actually, no, no, wait, before that, you mentioned the referendum. I just need to know this as a fact for myself because someone told me this recently and it's made me realize that we're screwed basically with any referendum ever. Cause apparently every single state has to be above 50% for a referendum to go through. Is that correct? Uh, no, you need a majority of the population and a majority of the states and territories. 
Okay, that's different then. Yes, so some states could vote no, but as long yeah. as a majority of the states or territories vote yes and, a, and more than 50% of the population vote yes, then it will be passed. It is uh, a very high bar. I don't even know if there's ever been a referendum in which all the states voted yes, but again, I'll, I'll find this out when I actually start researching the show. Um, it is an extremely high bar. Yeah, it's eight out of the 44. Of the 44 referenda we've had, only eight was successful. Um, so it is quite a high bar, but yeah, and whether the voice will go is is still a pretty open question. But um, it is certainly ridiculous how hard it is to change the constitution, considering how stupid and dumb our constitution is in many ways. So yeah, that is a frustrating reality of Australian political um, yeah uh, yeah institutions. Okay. Yeah. No, so, so I'm just trying to think if we did a referendum right now. Are you talking about the re- Republic specifically? Is that the referendum we're talking about or is it something else? No, the voice, the voice referendum will happen. The voice to parliament, the First Nations voice to parliament question, which was a Albanese Labor government promise, is going to be put to Australians in the second half of the next year. Wow. Okay. I am completely out of touch with that. No, one. no. That's most a- people are. It's crazy. <laughs> like it, it's until that debate actually starts up. People have got a lot of shit on their plate. It's totally understandable, but you will sort of see more and more of that of that entering the cultural conversation. I think at the right. start of the first half of next year, and then yet yeah, the actual vote itself will be, I think, done by the end of next year. Mm-hmm. Ooh, shit is gonna get racist next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not. They're doing this thing where they're not funding the yes or no campaign. Normally, almost every referendum, there's public money that goes to a yes or no campaign. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, they're not doing that. They're just they're making a public education campaign about the referendum process itself because it's been so long since we've had one. But uh, yes, it will be interesting to see. You're right; they will get quite racist. But expect to see someone like Jacinta Price, who's a First Nations conservative woman who doesn't like the voice, and yeah, right wing Aboriginal voices, sort of yeah, being trumpeted a lot to try and dispel yeah. any notions of racism, I would say. you got to yeah. love that whenever they're like, we've, we've got one of the minorities here. See, they agree with us. Look so, at this one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> look at this one. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
<laughs> uh, love that phrase. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, stay tuned for that. I'll, I'll, I'll keep my ear out as well. I'll wait for the first person I'd like to. I'm like, I, I agree with them. Done. <laughs> it's a lot easier that way. Uh, but yes, to go back to the right now. So you mentioned, so yes, you do poetry and you do plays. Have you done any of that stuff? Has any of that stuff gone anywhere? Uh, the poetry was a weird phase when I was in primary school. I did one about a toilet, I believe. Uh, ridiculous. I Yes, my, my poetry is nothing. It was all, and I stopped doing it after a while. I, I, I mentioned find- it still. It's... Uh, well, I just sort of, I just remember that was again part of the phase of like being creative and like, oh my God, I got obsessed with this. Um, I find it hard to engage with poetry these days. I wish I read more poetry, but I just don't quite sort of get it. But uh, yes, and then plays, I wrote a comedy play for the comedy festival in 2019 called Quanda, which was like satire on Q&A. Really loved doing that. Loved, loved that. Loved writing a bunch of different characters and getting jokes in a, in a different way. And I would love to do that again. My my sort of goal for the next five years would, would be to write and have a a, a serious production of of a, of a play produced. That would be big for me. Yeah, right. And so you uh, like still comedy, or would be more trying to be something? I hope comedy. Yes, I think starting with comedy would make the most sense. Hopefully, I could achieve that. That'd be the intention. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be the pitch. Yeah, um, whether people laugh or not, that's a. <laughs> I love, yeah. I mean, some plays are like some plays. Some plays that I've built as comedies are not very funny, and I think that's part of it. Like, I go to quite a bit of theater, and um, sometimes you're like, "Really, that got a, that got like that much of a laugh?" Well, people think this is a riot. Um, sometimes I think the bar's a bit lower, so I want to get involved yeah. in that and be like, nice. you know, just yeah. get over that bar. But then, you know, <laughs> some plays like Martin McDonough, who wrote Three Billboards Outside, and it's, yeah, his his play work originally, his Irish plays are just like so fucked up and so funny. Yes, and you did something it in like Bruges as well in Bruges. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Angels in America is incredible. Yeah, anything, anything vaguely that direction would be would be really cool to write one day. Yeah, right. Okay, That's, uh, yeah, and actually, McDonough's probably a good example because he's obviously that black comedy where it's. Real messed up, but it's also got the comedy elements in it. This is it. Yes, I think that's sort of my that's my propensity. I've I've sort of dipped my toe in a little bit and started working with some theaters and of getting a read on the theater world's uh, politics, like and you know investment in certain politically correct ideas and their unwillingness to view comedy as a way to sort of play with those things or irony and satire sometimes i've been, I come up against some pretty crazy walls in that in that respect which is pretty frustrating um tell me more well i don't want to go, go too much into it. just 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 you're coming at it from different different worlds right and you know comedians Trust the audience obviously there are racist comedians who do racist jokes but you know you 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 would do something that is satirizing race uh, race or racism or or is playing with racial issues or you'll have a horrible character say something racist and fucked up and the audience and which will make the audience laugh because we know that that's the bad thing to say mm-hmm. someone from the theater world it seems to me might be more like oh you can't you can't even say that or you can't represent that on stage in any way because that is basically racism and it's just like that's i don't think that's that's how it works so yeah, anyway i think they could be get the, the backup 
stuck about it, but yeah. Well, a little bit. You, I heard don't... Here, you heard here first, folks. <laughs> Blackface the Musical by Tom Ballard. <laughs> without more, okay, without more details, this sounds horrible. And I don't want to be a wokeness is killing us comedy or whatever. I just like yeah. this this approach to art or satire or this fear of, um, yeah, being able to go into darker topics uh, was quite, it was quite interesting. It seemed a little bit closed-minded to me, but that that was just a limited experience. And you know, if I finish this play, finally actually finish this play I'm working on, and sort of feel like happy and I can stand by it, then that's probably the the first step. Yeah, and that's I mean I think like this audience can skew older in a lot of theatre stuff, so probably there's a bit of concern there that they won't get it and all that sort of thing. So. This is it. I mean, yes. The I mean, I, I, when I go to London, I go to London a lot, and and I, I sort of keep across the London theatre scene a lot. And yeah, it's just the the place that theatre has in their culture is pretty remarkable. I mean, there's obviously a lot of stuffy, old, horrible British theatre too. But like, there's really cool, young, cutting edge vibes, and there's theatre that speaks to young people in a very modern way that is still so hard to do in in Australia I think often because it's just so fucking expensive to go and even with discounted youth tickets it's really hard to get there but also they're not putting on stuff that's really you know reaching out to to young people and and saying something um about now um Belvoir does great at that in Sydney that's that's a fantastic theater that does some very cool programming but um yeah you know it just seems like there's a lot of room like there's sort of an open road there for weird cool interesting young funny people to to get involved in theater and put cool stuff on well, actually, so this might attach to a wider issue. So, like, because I agree, when you go to London, one of the things that's fun, you go there, and don't get me wrong, obviously, these are the most high high expensive, people would hate it as artists, but the fact that, like, every single tube station everywhere has nothing but shows of all the West End and all that stuff everywhere, right. like, that's just, like, a nice starting point that then trickles down into, obviously, the more risky productions. Like, the fact that it's getting such importance... Well, yeah, it's, like and right, said. and it's subsidised, right? Like, the, and yeah. the, Royal, the Royal Court, you can go see a play there for, like, £20, Right and royal court, and sometimes it'll be weird and, and awful and pretentious, but sometimes it'll be fucking mind blowing. You know, like yeah, they the the and I know twenty pound is about I don't know thirty thirty or forty bucks or whatever, but um yeah, they just yes the subsidising the importance of of theatre as a, a place to do cool edgy work um, and controversial work too. Like when was the last time you had a, you heard about a controversial Australian play that really like. Started, you know, fucking with the system, or started uh, controversial cause- the other way. I think more likely you'll get. <laughs> <laughs> yes, normally the scandals are this cast is entirely white. What the hell are you yeah. doing? Um, <laughs> yes, but when is the actual content of the play said something shocking or like you know mm-hmm. started a cultural conversation? That's that's very rare, I think. And actually, so you've had experience because like like the, to the widest stuff. This is something I'm, I'm kind of low key without having any depth of knowledge about it, obsessed with. But Australia's uh, lack of system systemic culture, like as in, obviously, there's when you've got this many people and they've got the time. There's we're making plenty of stuff, but like there just doesn't seem to be this focus at all from any like top down level to promote the arts anyway. Like mm. you always feel that here, like the fact that there's even on TV, there's not that much ever getting produced anymore. Like there's no original product, like stuff will come and go real quick. I don't know. It just seems like there's not a lot of depth here in terms of funding from a higher level to push that sort of stuff. Is that like a fair read on it for Australia? Oh, sure. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think it's been a constant struggle and you talk to anyone in the arts and you'll talk about how undervalued it is, how we punch above our weight compared to how much actual funding goes into it. 
when you have conservative governments in, their priorities are fucking ballet and opera and that's it. And then anything that, that is anywhere different or might suggest that maybe, I don't know, the earth's on fire or that um, <laughs> being, uh, you know, being rich could be bad, uh, should absolutely not be uh, funded and everything should have a fucking commercial evil Chevron partnership to, to, to sponsor every single festival or whatever the fuck. And there is like yeah, like a nationally coordinated body. There is the Australian Council, I guess. But yeah, I think obviously because we're so spread out too, I think that's sort of an impediment. Obviously, in London, you have the National Theatre in London. Yeah, I mean, I think at one point, I think that under the Morrison government, the arts portfolio was put into transport or something. The Minister for Roads was like was all subsumed into this one massive department. Everyone was like, Jesus Christ. But the arts are huge. I think you know they always cite these facts that more people go to the art every uh, to an art thing every weekend than they do to sport. And and look at how much prominence and money is invested in in our sporting culture compared to, to the arts. Yes, that's uh, that is quite frustrating. Um, and certainly, the, my understanding is like any kind of mid level theatre company or arts organisation is getting totally fucked at the moment, particularly after the pandemic. Yeah, it's it's mm. pretty bleak that stuff. Yeah, and like I, I always wonder what kind of like again that has on the national like identity because I, I I mean I used I did a thing once about like race and like being Greek Australian, I can kind of see the two and how very different they are in terms of how they're treated. And one thing I've always kind of thought about Australia is we've got like a cultural identity, but it doesn't really change. It hasn't changed in 20 years or like 30 <laughs> years, even like we're kind of yep. stuck. Like if you wanted to talk about an Aussie movie now, like you'd still almost be talking about eighties movies, like essentially like, which I know is that's just one factor of it, but like how much does that impact how people's identities are formed or what it says about them? The fact that we, and I think that comes from potentially that idea that there's no like larger body kind of helping guide that and give some more structure to that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, like, and look, ABC, the ABC is an obvious institution that has done something in that in sort of telling our story, obviously been under relentless political attacks um, over a long period of time and been starved of funding, has also not done a great job of, you know, keeping up to date necessarily and appealing to younger viewers. Um, you know, they cancelled Tonightly, which was the voice of a generation. Yeah. Not really. No one watched it. Um, but... Yes, so you're right. I mean, and but yeah, and also our media is so sort of weirdly fractured. And but no, it's it's crazy. I mean, Channel Seven. I'm trying to write jokes about this. Channel Seven is bringing back Australian Idol. Like that's we're doing that in 2023. They are reviving Australian Idol, and Neighbours can't even fucking die. Like, like they 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 finished. Everett, Kylie came back. We all had a big farewell. And now Amazon's just saying, oh, no, we're going to keep that going. We're going to put that back on life support for some fucking reason. This mother and son show, which is going around with Matt O'Kine and Denise Scott, who I both love, and it could be great. I don't know. It could be great. But it, it is quite bizarre that we're having a reboot of this, like, classic 80s comedy that, that does give a sense or sort of suggest that we're at a bit of a loss for new ideas, which is a, a little bit sad, Yeah. Which doesn't seem like the case if you actually look at what people are making everywhere, right? It's just the case more like a, a fear of new ideas might be more accurate than... I guess, yeah, or just just all these... The older institutions still hasn't reckoned with the presence of, like, the internet. I mean, there are obviously, you know, Australian comedians, YouTube comedians and commentators who are massive online who you would never hear from in the mainstream media whatsoever. And maybe they're happy with that. I, I don't know. And we don't even have a mainstream media really like where everybody's watching like what's the thing that everyone's watching channel seven is doing this sketch show again with a bunch of my friends next year and they're all tv parodies like the older sketches are going to be based around tv parodies and i wish them luck and they're really funny and it could be great again but i was talking about this with people last night it's like what is the show 
that everyone will get. Like, what are these shows that enough people, like literally millions of Australians are watching to the point where you will appreciate a parody of those shows? Um, Apart from like maybe a couple of reality shows. Reality shows would be big. I guess if they do Game of Thrones and stuff, like, you know, big prestige TV parodies, that would sort of work. But it's like, you know, yeah, back in the 80s and 90s or whatever, there really were six channels and everyone was across the big shows and mm. everyone watched I Hate Saturday or whatever. Um, so it's, yeah, it's sort of a different um, different world now. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, I don't know. Good and bad with that stuff, right? Sure, yes. And look, I don't want <laughs> Hey Hey it's Saturday to come back. I'm sure they're, they're working on that shit or whatever. Yeah, they did. Didn't they try? I think they tried that a couple. Oh, years they ago. tried. Oh, they yeah. tried. <laughs> oh, they'll keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> they'll try again. Um, yeah, talking about like how the things have changed over time, and and so you. This is actually. I've just always wanted this, right? So you obviously. Uh, represented a, a younger angle with things, with how you like projected stuff your whole time, politically and all that stuff, right? Yep. And now, obviously, uh, look, you're not young anymore, Tom, all right? What? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> now, what I mean is like, you've obviously like become a much more established figure in the scene and all that stuff and your mm-hmm. viewpoints. Do you feel like there's like a younger cohort now that's saying different things to you? Do you feel like you're becoming kind of a crotchety old person in some ways? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, you're like, you guys don't get it. No, no, you're, you're idiots. Well, do you reckon it's always the case where they're always getting more, like, legit? Obviously, as the band of histories that everything gets more left-leaning and liberal, but do you yes. reckon there's, like, do you reckon well, you're you're like, that's too Yes, shy. that's a very nice theory. Propagated by people on the left, I think, who sort of think, that'll all, we'll get there in the end. Demographics <laughs> of destiny, all these young people will become left-wing. I mean, it's just, just not true. I mean, I write about it in the book, like, Howard won the youth vote in 2004, Reagan and Thatcher, massively popular with young people. Um, the and, and this idea that progress is inevitable, that we've reached the end of history and everything's just going to improve from here is all just, just nonsense, right? It is extremely possible for us to go backwards and for things to get worse and for this country to be- become even more right-wing. I mean, that's mm. certainly possible. Um, I like to think that I'm 33, so, you know... I'm counting everything under 40 as, as young, broadly Definitely, speaking. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But I, I also don't know what's happening in the culture. I'm not on TikTok or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like I take pride in the fact that I'm not... My, my default is young people are cool and interesting and decent and um, overwhelmingly demonised by <laughs> mainstream media. And our, our, like our media or commentators are the voices that you hear and our political class are way older. The median age is about 38 in Australia. Um and of course, yeah, the vast majority of all our political leaders and business leaders, all these fucking boomers, are um, way older than that. Um, so I like to think that I'm open to new ideas and hopefully not too defensive. But you are seeing it. There is, you know, I mean, the oldest millennials are in their early 40s now, the geriatric millennials. And you will see them, you know, scolding these Zoomer kids of the TikTok stuff. And I'm like, okay, I got to make sure I don't become, I don't want to become that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You want to try to avoid that as much? Yeah, that makes sense. It's possible. Will Will Anderson's 50 years old or something like that. It's just like he's still the coolest guy. So um, it's possible to hang on to the coolness, yeah. Actually, Ned, you raised another fun there with the, the fact that like the media heads and stuff are always – they're always the same as well. It's, it's like you get some depth and variety, guys. Like there's always the same people, same six people you see on TV all the time. So that's – yeah. It's, anyway. it's insane, man. It's – I mean, you know, Q&A for all its um, – Badness and you know its faults, and I wrote this play satirizing it. I, I think people invested the idea of 
this civil debate, you know, fixing politics or what we all need is just to sit around in a civil way and go through the facts in a rational way, and I don't agree with that necessarily. Um, but at least I guess it was some kind of common forum where politically minded people, and they did put lots of diverse voices on there, both ideologically and also like literally ordinary people just saying, hello, I don't I don't have a dog in this fight, this just issue just fucking sucks and it's ridiculous that nothing's being done about it. Yeah, I think it had a real value in that respect, and I hope that it kind of finds its way back. It sort of went through a, you know, didn't didn't go so great this year, and they're returning it to Monday nights, I think. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like, what are the what are the where is the national? How does the national conversation take place? I suppose is the question, and it certainly can't happen on Twitter. That's ridiculous. Certainly now, um, it, it it shouldn't happen through the fucking Murdoch media pages or through Sky News. I just I'm not sure exactly where where people are going to to think and debate about stuff. Yeah. Mm. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't even think about like, yeah. Where, where are you going to hear that? Yeah, I guess on YouTube. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, but I again, you're still podcasts. coming back to ABC and SBS, you know, which these broadcasts are so demonized and underfunded and semi-privatized in the SBS's case by, by governments over the years. It's just like, I, and I take great courage in the fact that no matter how many times the Murdoch media and liberals bang on about how horrible the ABC is, it still remains this valued and trusted institution and, and the vast majority of Australians think it's good, even if they don't love everything that's on there. Like, it's a good thing that this thing exists yeah. with no ads, with with editorial independence. We we like that. Yeah. Uh, attempted independence, yeah. Yes. Like, <laughs> as much as they can, yeah. Um, okay, so the uh, one last thing, I guess, before we sign off, I think, and this is kind of related to that as well, I guess the future, and but also your stance on it. Because, like, do you ever feel like... I'm, I I'm, a, I'm against it. I'm anti the future. Yeah, <laughs> that's was, that was what I want to confirm. I thought so. I thought so. Basically. Yeah. No, like, because uh, obviously your slant being political, and uh, which it was for a long, long time now, right? It's always kind of been, even when you were on the radio and stuff, you always had this slant with hate delivered stuff. Do you, f- <laughs> it's always weird to say, because I always think about this when I saw, look at old George Carlin clips where he's on stage <laughs> ranting at people and he's mm. selling out everywhere. And I'm always like, I wonder if it ever gets to him that he's selling out everywhere, saying this stuff as he watches the world just go <laughs> in the complete opposite direction. Like, as in, how much would you be like, am I doing anything here? Or is this just a way to let out my own stuff? It's not really about <laughs> anything else. Yes. So do you, do you ever get feel like that? Or do you ever think like that? Or it's not about that, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Well, I, uh, I started doing more political comedy since around 2012, 2013. And it's, yeah, it's gone great. It's gone really, I think it's made a really... <laughs> I think everything's going hunky dory. <laughs> but no, you did I mean, it. I, yes, I did it. You're welcome, everybody. Think about how much worse things would be if I hadn't yeah, been telling exactly. my jokes. Yeah, we don't know. So, you know, we don't know. No, I got this a lot with 20, 2016 is when I did uh, a stand up show called The World Keeps Happening, but also this this comedy lecture about refugees, Boundless Plains to Share. And this is a constant conversation you had. You're like, oh, I like the show. It was a good show, but you need to do that in regional Queensland, or you need to do it at a fucking Liberal Party function or something, right? And it is just a complete misunderstanding of what political comedy really is. It is not a political act, really. It is not seriously changing people's minds. Um, You know, Nish Kumar, just for his show, he was touring three, he just spoke about this very well. He's like, everyone, no political comedian knows that they're walking into 
you know, a 50-50 audience and people are there with their pens and papers going, hmm, okay, I hear your jokes but and also your arguments. And I have completely reconsidered everything that I, that I think and believe. That's just not what it, it does. To me, the best political comedy is often you in a room full of people who, yes, broadly agree with what you, the way you see the world. And it is a, it is like an exorcism. It's a relief. It's a, um, it's a solidarity booster. It is just, I love seeing a comedian, a left-wing comedian just sort of yell the truth and, and make you laugh about it. Just remind you that the world is fucked up and our conservative capitalist society fucks over most people and it's wrong. God damn it. And so sometimes if you have art or comedy that just shakes you and reminds you of that, that's, that's enough that it can do. Mm. Um, and now there are some political comedians, and and I'm maybe a little bit in this category, who sort of you know who do who do work as well, like do the activist work, like actually walk the walk. Mark Thomas, the British comedian, is very much in that category. Rod Quantock, um, Josie Long, you know, people who have taken time out of their comedy career to like invest resources and time in helping activists and doing stuff that really does stuff out in the real world outside the comedy theater to try and advance a left wing socialist cause. Um, I was handing out leaflets for the Greens uh, during this past state election, that, like walking around and putting that into people's letterboxes. Uh, so, yes, I'm a hero. Um, yeah. But, yes, the, the two things can work <laughs> can work together. And I, I think the impact of comedy is often over, is overstated both ways. I mean, the other, the other reaction I got to that refugee show was like, coming up to me going what you're doing is so important this is amazing you, you're you're a genius you're a hero i'm like really not the people who are actually doing work on this are human rights lawyers and refugee activists and the refugees themselves who are living with this reality every day so you're just kind of you know making some hilarious jokes <laughs> out of this horrific <laughs> situation yeah, yeah yeah to try to we raised money i guess that was that was one thing that was helpful but um yeah I th- and I, that really does cut both ways, both in terms of, oh, look at this comedian saying these shitty jokes. Basically, they're Hitler or they are responsible for racism in our society. It's like, not really. And look at this great comedian saying all these good things. They're changing the world. Not really. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's actually a, yeah, that's a good way to put that, I guess. Nice. I hope so. I mean, I I really love Hannah Gadsby's work and I enjoyed Nanette, uh, particularly live. You know, the Netflix special didn't quite, I think, capture actually what I it was like seeing well. live. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. her argument in there that if comedians had made the right jokes about the Clinton scandal in the late 90s that we wouldn't have had Donald Trump is like a very... Uh, it, it, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And... And we are obsessed with culture. Like, so much of our politics is, is expressed through these cultural war debates, right? Like, we think that's the most important important thing. The, the right losing their mind about fucking drag queen story time. Like, this is the end of Western civilization or whatever the fuck. And if you have a more of a socialist approach analysis or a class critique of society and politics, you sort of, I think, start to see all that as this is all just nonsense and noise and distraction that will be forgotten in two weeks. It'll be over, it'll be done. Like, the real shit that's going on that actually makes everybody <laughs> unhappy <laughs> that is fucking over the most people is a class structure, the way that all this wealth and power gets concentrated in the hands of a tiny few very rich people of all colours and creeds and <laughs> gender identities right at the top while everybody else yeah, sort of gets screwed. Nice. Class reductionism. I like it. 
Well, a, obviously, the, the reality of class is expressed through race, and obviously, the the ruling class is overwhelmingly white and male and cisgendered, yada yada yada. But I'm editing that part out. Don't worry. No, <laughs> that's what you just said. <laughs> no, no, that's that's. No, I, I agree. I think sometimes it can be distracting, and uh, it can feed egos on both sides to be like, "This is the worst," or "This is the best." So, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, We've jumped around a lot, Tom, uh, but yeah, that's been great. I think we've got some insight into a whole bunch of different things. Um, what I guess the only other thing I'll ask is usually uh, where, where can people follow you? What's next? What should they do? And what's to follow you anywhere? They should so, buy my book, God damn it! Um, I worked what, really yes, hard. What's the book about? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. You're like Buddy Parkinson, aren't you? Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm the sorry, book yeah. that big rant I did about class analysis—that's the book, basically. It's, the book, it, yeah. And, and, well, and through a millennial prism, yes, it's trying to explain how millennials are fucked over um, by the system as a generation when it comes to the big six for me, which is work, housing, education, privatization, wealth inequality, and the climate crisis. And it is trying to explain the journey that I've been on uh, politically and sort of as a person since 2016, trying to pull that together and trying to lay out and tell that story as to what happened in the 70s and 80s that led to the very unequal, semi-broken society that we live now. And yes, there's a bunch of jokes about boomers, but at the end it's sort of like, but the real enemy is capitalism, friends. So um, there's funny pictures and swearing throughout, and uh, hopefully that's of some use to some people. Uh, and I worked really, really hard on it, and I deserve yeah. a gold star. And if people buy it, that would be nice. Yeah, that's, that's good. I think. <laughs> Is that too pathetic? <laughs> Look, Please? I thought you'd have like a slick pitch prepared. <laughs> this feels yeah. like the first time you've been. No, I got to get better at that. Um, no, no, but it's good. Yeah, that's exactly what. Like to be honest, it's exactly what I expected to have been about. So, but the personal tie I didn't know about and. I love a nice historical basis for stuff, looking at stuff, because obviously this is, everything is a result of that stuff that happened before, so especially policies in the 70s and 80s, I feel like. Yeah, I just, yes, I got, I've gotten mad into history, not, you know, like deep academics. I'm not going to original sources or anything or go to the archives, but I just, yes, I think, I think if this happens as you get older and you get more aware, you sort of ask a lot more questions about history and you realise, yes, of course we are everything that we exist in and make assumptions about is because of what's gone before us. And that's actually where hope comes from, too. The more you know about the history, I think, particularly when you read about successful leftist stuff and this world, this country that our parents lived in, in which there was like 50% union density and not everything was handed over to private markets and there was actually a chance for ordinary people to sort of get ahead and live a decent life and, you know, society was sort of more democratic in a lot of ways. You, you That's very helpful. That sort of gives you hope uh, in regards to the future that, um, that you think... Good things can happen again. Yeah. Yeah, you got there once, you can get there again. Mm, I think so. Yeah. And, and understanding, you know, liberation, that's very liberating when once you get your head around and can understand just how things got so fucked. That's sort of step one to figuring out what, what is to be done about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so please get the book. That's uh, That would be nice. Um, I will be doing sort of write a few writers' festivals next year, and, and I'll be touring a stand-up show and doing some books events along the way. But, yeah, the stand-up show next year is called It Is I. It's going to Perth, Adelaide, Gold Coast, Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and probably Edinburgh next year. Damn. But all the details are on comedy.com.au. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot for that, Tom. Um, yeah, thanks for being on. Thanks, George. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.